Hey, fantastic fans. I've just discovered the most unbelievable tennis time machine that you've got to check out. Goldenageoftennis.com is the world's leading retailer of retro tennis gear. They sell relaunch clothing designs from world-famous brands like Sergio Tacchini, Fila, and LS that were worn by absolute legends of the sport, like Borg and Connors, Becker. You can literally dress like your idols in these cool one-of-a-kind looks that will have everyone on the courts asking where you got them. Visit goldenageoftennis.com to get same-day worldwide shipping, plus 10% off at checkout with the promo code FANTASTIC. Bring vintage tennis back to the courts with goldenageoftennis.com. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I mean, they always have a big mouth. They always talk a lot. So, <laughs> it happened before, it's going to happen again. While the tennis world zeroed in on whether Novak Djokovic would be able to win the historic calendar Grand Slam at the 2021 U.S. Open, our guest today proved not only it could be done, but she'd become the first female player in the sport of wheelchair tennis to go one step further as she dominated the 2021 season to become the first tennis player since Steffi Graf in 1988 to win the Golden Slam. Born in Warden, Netherlands, she'd begin her wheelchair tennis career at age seven and would quickly become the number one ranked junior on the ITF World Rankings by winning Masters titles in both 2013 and 2014. Those trophies may have been front and center on her bookshelf at the time, but after winning an astonishing 24 Grand Slam titles and countless others, such as being named 2018, 19, and soon to be 2021 ITF world champion, I'm guessing she's invested an entire trophy room at this point. Having proudly continued the grand tradition of Dutch wheelchair tennis greats like Esther Berger, she'd win her first Grand Slam in 2017 at her Wimbledon debut. And from there, her amazing records would continue to pile up. In 2019, she'd partner with another Dutch great, Anique Van Koot, to win the calendar Grand Slam in doubles. And in 2021, she'd win the prestigious gold medal in both singles and doubles at the Tokyo Paralympics, which would place an emphatic exclamation point on an already unbelievable year. I could really keep going with her list of accomplishments. And I've got to say, I'm truly honored that she's here today to talk about her remarkable tennis journey and career. Our guest today is the number one player on the planet for her sports, the fantastic Didi DeGroot. Didi, how are you? Hi, thank you. Welcome to Fantastic Tennis. What an introduction. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm, I kind of have, I don't know if you can see them, but I have chills right now. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm speaking to a legend, a literal legend right now. So I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit nervous because you have 24 Grand Slams and you're only 24. When I was 24, I was paying off college debt and I still had face acne. So you're way <laughs> ahead of the game, Didi. <laughs> uh, plus, Honestly, I bow down to anybody that gives herself Grand Slams as birthday presents. So 24 at 24, that's amazing. You spoil yourself. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> it's way better than a Starbucks gift card, Didi. It is. Way better. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> you're pretty much tennis royalty, so I'm so glad you're here so we can talk about your story. It's going to be a fun hour today. First, before we jump into your career, I must say congratulations. What an amazing year. Amazing year. I'm Actually, it was so amazing. I'm going to try it in Dutch, too. Can I say it in Dutch? Let me see. Um, yeah. Oh, that's that's good. Yeah. I got Thank the. 
I got, I've been practicing for you a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Dutch is the hardest language, Didi. It's like, you have to have yeah. the, the here, like, yeah. I can't do it. Yeah. It's, it's like very difficult. Yeah. No, it's, it's not, it's not one of the easiest language. <laughs> it's pretty, but it's hard. I can't do it anyway. It goes without saying that 2021 was stuff of legends. So let's talk about it. Are you back home in the Netherlands right now? I am. Yes, I'm back in in the Netherlands. It's been a very long summer, actually, where even after playing the Grand Slams, then playing Tokyo and then flying straight to New York, where I had another Grand Slam. I came back, I think I was only back for five days and we had to go again for another tournament. So I really have been all over the place. So uh, I'm really happy to be back at home for uh, three weeks. (laughs) Just three weeks. Okay. well, (laughs) oh, my gosh. What was the reception like for you coming back from New York? Yeah, it was actually, it was uh, overwhelming, I think. Uh, When you're away and you win a big title or you win a tournament, you don't always know how it's received at home. It's only when you get home that you're like, oh, wow, everyone knows about it. Everyone is congratulating me. Like I was, I was just overwhelmed with how uh, huge the impact was. was, uh, And that's just, yeah, it was amazing. It was historic, Didi. I am so glad you're here to talk about it today. Your season keeps going though, because you just got back from Sardinia. You won another title at the World Team Cup in Sardinia. Team Netherlands defeated Team Japan in the finals. I'll spare you with saying congratulations in Dutch again, but congratulations. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You must have forgotten what it feels like to lose at this point, Didi. I mean, it just keeps going for you. Do you know what? The funny thing is losing, that's a feeling that you just don't want to have it. You'll remember it always. And yeah, no, I have been, uh, it's it's been going very well. I've only lost one match this year, but still every match I just, I try to play as good as I can to not lose. So um, yeah, no, it's definitely something that you don't want to. Well, you do it well. I hope you're going on vacation this year. Are you doing something fun in the off season? The funny thing is I just said like uh, I'm home for three weeks now and two weeks are already gone. So it's one more week. So we're going to the, like the end of year masters, which is like the ATP and the double TA. Yeah. Have like uh, end of year masters as well. So that's coming for us. And then afterwards, I think I'll finally have some time off to, uh, to do something nice for myself and uh, maybe go on a little holiday. Oh Uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll be hyping you up for sure for this tournament. So let's cap off the year and uh, let's talk about it. So I'd like to get into your career today and I'd love to play a game called 15 love. And in this version, I have 15 different topics for you that range from the beginning of your career all the way to your life today. We'll go through each topic one by one and get to know how you were able to become one of the greatest athletes ever in the sport of wheelchair tennis. Also along the way, I've designed three delightful, difficult Didi DeGroote inspired trivia questions that will test your own memory today about your divine career, Didi. And if you get two of three of these rights, I'm going to ship another trophy to your trophy room. So, and if not, who cares? You have a golden slam, so it's fine. You don't have to win this game today. Bring it on, bring it on. Bring it on, let's do it. Let's talk topic one. It's your start in tennis. And I always ask every guest on our show, what was the earliest memory of tennis on TV or watching tennis live for you? Ooh, on TV, I think... Because I, I actually, I didn't start watching able-bodied tennis till quite later. But I remember watching Esther Vergeer play her Beijing final. I think it was at the Games. Wow. So that's 2008, if I yeah. remember correctly. 
so yeah i was i was very young still i think i was uh, like 11 or 12 and yeah that's what i remember i remember how there was like a little recap because back then there wasn't a lot of paralympic sports uh shown on tv so it was a, a recap and uh yeah i enjoyed it very much and i think after i started watching more and more tennis uh, and then also some yeah some of the able body matches Oh my gosh. So you're starting with legends today. If that's how you started with Esther, (laughs) I mean, I read in your bio, you grew up in the Netherlands and you started playing tennis at seven. How did tennis become such a huge and important part of your life, Didi? Yeah, I think it started off as something fun, uh, which I think is, is so important for any kid. To just have that that thing in your life where you can really look forward to. So it was only once a week for an hour, I think. But still, I spoke to my mom recently and she was like, you never wanted to skip a lesson, even though you were ill or if you you had a cold. No, you didn't want to skip a lesson. And that's very important, I think, as a kid to have something that you enjoy so much that you just want to go whatever it takes and I think just from there it, it sort of grew and grew and um yeah I I started playing more and and playing a little bit of uh, like tournaments and stuff um and I think it just really helped grew my my confidence and helped me grow as a kid to sort of uh, yeah have that enjoying part but also feel like oh I'm good at this I I'm good at something so yeah I think it helped me in many ways absolutely did your parents play at all? No, I actually am the only one in my family who plays tennis. Uh, my mom started only two years ago, I think. So she's enjoying it now too. But for, okay. for a long time, yeah, I was the, I was the only one. Um, uh, my grandmother played, but she, uh, yeah, she had to stop because she couldn't move as well. And uh, she, uh, unfortunately, she couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. But yeah, she enjoyed it for a long time as well. You obviously were a natural talent right away. Because it didn't take long for you to start racking up the wins. When did you start playing tournaments? I know you said you started at seven. Do you remember that first time competing? Yes. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, (laughs) I, I remember, I think I was a year, like I was around 12 or 13. And uh, it was like a national tournament. And I started off in the lowest division. And I think there were only three people, including me. So I had two matches. And that first match, I had no idea where to serve from. I had no idea when to uh, swap sides. It was funny just because I think that's a little bit different from let's say able body tennis to wheelchair tennis, there isn't a lot like the, uh, the amount of players is, is so, is so little uh, that you don't have a lot of people to play with. So you, you need to play those tournaments. But when you're younger, you don't play at your club or you don't play games just regularly. So I had no clue how the score went and that I had to follow it. And uh, I just I was thinking maybe, you know what my mom says, you know what, you're finished now. You can come back or um, (laughs) so. Yeah, no, it was it was crazy. I think I did win, but I'm not even sure about this. Uh, I'm I'm probably guessing you did. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a fair bet. It's a good fair bet. Oh my gosh. That is, that's great. I love hearing the beginning of a journey like that. Yeah. And I think the funny thing as well is because it was so low key, like nobody, nobody cared that we didn't know. Cause I think my opponent didn't know as well. So we were both just like, mm, okay. And we looked at the side to our moms and we were like, do we need to switch sides now? We don't know. Yeah. Um, Every tennis player listening right now is saying, oh yeah, that was me. And actually that was me like last week, because I don't remember when to change on a tie break. So it's fine. You know, it's still... <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, Well, let's go into topic two. We're going to segue today into your junior ITF career. You started (laughs) playing again at seven, and it didn't take long for you to conquer the world. And on February 25th, 2013, you become the number one ranked junior player in the world. 
How would you describe yourself as a young kid, personality-wise, Didi? So I think I, I'm I'm always a little bit in the background. I wouldn't I I'm not very like a an outspoken kid or still like I'm I'm a little bit shy towards a lot of people. You seem very uh, chill. Oh very yes, I'm chill. I'm chilled now. I'm definitely <laughs> chilled. But still, like in large groups, I, I always sort of have to find my my place. And um, yeah, I think as a as a kid, I think that was even uh, worse or maybe not call it worse, but it was it was more I was more shy. I was more in the background. Well, the confidence wasn't there yet, like you said. I mean, it came much later. So I could imagine, you know, feeling like this is new to the sport, too. And it's like already. Yeah. And I think as well, because there weren't a lot of tournaments to play. And also I had school, so I could really only play on the holidays of our school and then play a tournament, go back and uh, go to school the next day. So it was uh, when I was junior, I really just tried to focus on finishing school as soon as I could so that I could I could play tennis. So, yeah, I was really I was just trying to play tennis all the time and uh, and trying to finish school as soon as I could. It gets addicting, right? Were you competitive as a kid as well? Was that something that's that kind of is instilled when you're when you're on the court? I'm not sure if I was very competitive. I'm definitely like sportive. Like I I wanted to play outside all the time. I I loved gym time uh, at school. I think it's called PE. I don't yeah. know. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, we have PE. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, so like I, I love those kind of things. I, I didn't like uh, sitting, teaching math, uh, like those kind of things. So like that was definitely in there. And um, I knew that I think going for for tennis after school was uh, was the best option for me. <laughs> Can we talk about your game style for a moment? For those listening that are going to start following you and YouTubing you right after today, how would you describe your gameplay today? How would what's your game style? I'm definitely uh, very offensive. I like to sort of dictate the point and then go forwards and finish it. I think um, I'm physically quite strong, so I can, I, even when I'm in defense, I can turn it around and get into offense again. So, <laughs> Did you play that way as a junior as well? Is that kind of always the mentality of, yeah. of how you played very physical game? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think uh, what the funniest thing they actually say, the person who is on the court looks or is similar to the person off the court, uh, but actually they're, they're not alike. Uh, so I'm very offensive on the court, whereas in, in daily life, I would say I'm more defensive and on the background. So that was actually funny because um, I think sometimes you need to sort of believe in your game where uh, where like I know it's the right way and I know I need to play that way to to win matches, but it's not always the way that I feel. So, yeah, yeah it's not natural. It's not a no. natural thing. That's that's so fascinating yeah. that you say that. Yeah. So in the beginning, I really I was struggling sometimes. Like oh, like I want to play that way. I know I have to, but I, I don't dare to, or I'm scared. And uh, yeah, it's a funny transition. I think with all the success you had in juniors, I'm guessing that turning pro must have been a goal the entire time. Do you remember that conversation with your parents about wanting to make this your job? Well, I actually, I signed up for going to university, uh, but I, unfortunately I didn't get in. I didn't get accepted uh, and it, it didn't have like a second option. So it wasn't always like the main goal, even though I... I think they're probably laughing now that they turned you down. Yes. I think you should probably... No, I, I definitely... <laughs> At one point you're like, well, you know, you could have had a, you know, a legend in, in your college, but it's okay. Fine, whatever. I'll just win my grand slams. Yeah, no, I, I definitely don't <laughs> regret how that sort of ended up. No, yeah. So I was, uh, even though I really wanted to play tennis, I, I think I always sort of, I was a little bit scared to fully go for it. 
Whereas that uh, that event where I wasn't accepted led me into thinking, you know what? Okay, so I I have a gap year. I don't have anything else. What can I do? You know what? I'm just gonna play. And my parents were like, yeah, just go for it. And I think uh, the a gap year was two, and then three, and then a uh, long gap yeah. year. So yeah, no, I think like the way it went in the end, like looking back at it now, it was very special how it how it worked out. I think. It was meant to happen. (laughs) Absolutely, right? It's meant to be. Well, we're moving on to topic three today. And I'd like to talk about the sport itself for a moment. I've been following your career since I watched you play at the 2019 US Open, which was also the year you won the doubles calendar Grand Slam. Amazing. We'll definitely chat about that later. But since I had the face of the sport on the show today, I'd really love to talk about the history of the tour for a moment and introduce wheelchair tennis to those that may not know as much about it. Wheelchair tennis and the current world tour as we know it really came into existence with the help of the Japanese information technology company, NEC, when they became the title sponsor in 1991. The tour started with 11 tournaments, and today, three decades later, clothing giant Uniqlo has taken over title sponsorship, and the Uniqlo Wheelchair Tennis Tour now has 160 tournaments worldwide. And I feel like you won all 160 tournaments this past year. <laughs> Did you, right? Or like 159 of them, right? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> How has the tour changed the most in the five years you played professionally, Didi? Um, I think the, the funny thing, you use the word professionally. I think that has been the main key for us. I think in the beginning, well, I think actually uh, when you go back a little bit before I started, uh, there was actually this transition where players started full-time more and more, where they actually had the option to do it. And I think before that time, so let's say 10 years back, people had to, or the players actually had to work besides their career because they just weren't making enough money to to play full-time. And I think when I got on the tour, it was, it was after that transition period where everyone started playing full-time and it was actually people's jobs. And yeah, so I, I think I, I sort of, I got to the tour where it was possible to play full-time. And so I think that, I think us players are the first generation where it's actually possible to play the sports, bring a coach, uh, live off of tennis and just sort of have that opportunity. So I think that, yeah, it's very interesting how the sport really has gotten professional and how much energy we're actually putting into it. Absolutely. There's tournaments everywhere. I mean, yeah. literally, I mean, it's, we're, we're talking six continents all over the world. I mean, it is absolutely exploded. Yes. Yes. We're flying to all the grand slams. And I think around the grand slams, uh, like Australia, there's two or three preparation tournaments before Australian open. Same goes for, for, uh, Roland Garros, where we go to Nice, uh, to the Moritolu Academy. And also when you don't play the grand slams yet, there's so many tournaments you can go. I think there's one every week. Uh, So yeah, no, there's so many options these days. A fan of yours in Montreal, Canada, Don Husk has a few questions about the tour dynamic. She asks, Didi, how would you describe the tour for players? Who are your closest friends on tour? And is it an environment where a lot of players hang out together? Or do players typically stay in their own bubble? There's a little bit of a mixture going on, I think. Um, definitely, I have I have some friends. Mostly, I think they would be Dutch, like in my in our own team. We see them here at home, and then also we travel to the same tournament. So I think all of the Dutch players were were a good were a good group together, and we. You're tight. That's yeah. another team title. It makes sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, we we really get along together. But then also because um, the the group of players isn't 
as big as as the able-bodied players. So we uh, see each other a lot. We uh, basically at a lot of tournaments, especially the high-level tournaments, it's a lot of the same players. Uh, yeah, you form you form a bond, and and there's yeah, it's funny how the, some players are a little bit more in the, on themselves. They have a little bit of a bigger team, like two or three people, and they uh, hang out with their team. And other people maybe travel alone still, and they hang out with other players. So there's a mixture, I think. Who's the funniest player on tour? I want to know. Who's cracking everybody up in the locker room? Funniest? Um, so I would say uh, I I enjoy talking to uh, my teammate, Annie Fancourt. We always laugh together. We always we always joke around. And uh, even when we play on court, we try to keep it uh, light as well. So we joke around and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's fun. I need a doubles partner that can make me laugh. I get very intense on the court. Oh, yeah. So that's like the number one rule for me for doubles. I need somebody who's going to just say, hey, you need to chill out right now. Yeah, no, it's important. <laughs> it's, it's good to keep that light. I love it. Well, let's move on to topic four. I'm not sure if this person is funny or not, but I do know her iconic career was no joke. We couldn't talk about the history of wheelchair tennis without mentioning the legend and 48-time Grand Slam champion, Esther Berger, who, in the amazing tradition of Dutch wheelchair tennis greats, also comes from the Netherlands. She retired before you were able to compete against her or each other, but I was happy to read that she served as a type of mentor for you in your career. So topic four today is the legacy of Esther Berger. Didi, what influence did Esther have on the sport and at what point in your career did she cross paths with you? Yeah, so I think Esther was was actually the one that started that little transition of getting professional in in the in the tennis and on tour. I think because she was already she was playing amazing, she was beating everyone, and that way she sort of created that environment for herself where she could actually do those things. So go to a professional coach or trainer or bring someone with her on a tournament. So she had the availability to do that as well, but then it actually motivated other people like oh you know what Esther's doing this way it's going well maybe we should do it and uh, I think that's how, how Esther was in many ways such a good role model so yeah for for other athletes as well and then later on after she retired she tried to help me a little bit and that that was very special to have someone who you know has such a big legacy that such a big history of winning so many titles who just put sort of your her trust in you who says like oh you know what it, the path you want to go is is very hard but we're just going to see how I can help you and how how we can do it and and that's just very very important i think for a player to to have someone who really believes in you because if you don't have that from yourself you you don't have anything so when someone else puts that trust in you you can sort of build on that and you know what i i can do this and uh, and we're going to make it work so yeah it was very important that's so amazing that she took the time to do that as well did you ever get to practice with her uh, yeah, we practiced a little bit. It's amazing how, to see how even I think she was uh, retired for two years. I think uh, she was just hitting such good balls. It was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can only imagine how she was uh, playing actual matches. Does it bother you when people compare the two of you? Is that something that obviously you get it probably a lot because the legacy that you're creating for yourself is is treading on on Verger territory at this point. I mean, you're 24 with 24 Grand Slams. I'm sure the name comes up all the time. Is that something that obviously gives you pride to know that you're working towards that? Or is there a, a stress involved there that's you feel like you have to live up to that as well? No, I'm, I'm very happy. There's no stress. I feel like I follow my own path and I feel like I think what Esther has done, no one's ever going to do that again. I think like 
I don't think we should ever even try to do it because we will be getting crazy in just trying to follow that those footsteps, I think. I think what we can do is sort of build on what she tried to accomplish and then make it better or make it more professional or make it bigger. Um, so, yeah, I think sort of what she started, we need to build on that. And uh, uh, hopefully we managed to do that and we managed it. I think there was already a big step with uh, Wimbledon kicking on the singles four years ago, which, yeah, it was an important step for us. And uh, I think that's definitely something that we as players need to continue. Well said. Well said. Can I, before we move on from this topic, can I ask what is in the water in the Netherlands that there are so many legendary Dutch players over there that you've dominated the sport the past three decades? I mean, Esther, yourself, Anik, as you mentioned, Corey Holman. I mean, so many great Dutch players. Why is that? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I think, you know, we're actually very lucky to be such a small country, even though I think the amount of players is little. We can still train together. We can work together. And when I was uh, 18 years old, I could train with those really good players who were already top 10, top five. And that really helped me. Absolutely. Well, let's go on to topic number five. And we're going to talk about the early years on tour for you and your first pro title, DD. It's going to be the first test of your memory today with our first trivia question as well. And it's all about your first title on tour way back in 2012. So... We ready? I know it's going to be hard. <laughs> you have your coffee there. Let's. <laughs> we'll start at the very beginning. And honestly, Didi, you've played 400 matches on tour almost already. So this could be hard. So we'll see how it goes. Here's your question. You'd begin playing ITF events back in 2009, and you'd instantly win your first title in your first event at the Mercedes Open in Utrecht, Netherlands. The three players you would beat to win that title you would only play just once in your career. Can you remember the names of any of the players you beat in 2009 to win that title in Utrecht? They were all Dutch, by the way, if that helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that easy? Is this an easy one or no? <laughs> well, I have their faces in my Oh, that's in, good, in okay, head. good. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm just, if this is a, just a wild guess, but I'm thinking Vicky Lee. Yes. yes, yes, that's the final. Congrats, one point on the board for Didi. She's still undefeated. She can't lose, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it was difficult, though. I, I, don't, I don't remember the other players, I don't think. Karen Van Manen. Yeah. And Daminia Boomer Ola. I'm sorry to mangle her name. What a beautiful name. And I feel like I just, it's okay. I mean, you've played 400 matches now and you only played them <laughs> once. So, you know, that was pretty good that you remembered that. That was good. Do you remember that first event? What, what were your nerves like playing in that first major tournament for you? I know we talked about juniors and you couldn't even remember what the score was, but now we're, we're going for it now. We're on tour. This is, this is the big time. What was that first event like for you? Yeah, this was, this was, this was just eyes, eye opening. Um, it was all the top players who were there because it was like a super series event, which for us is like the highest after Grand Slams. So yeah, it was like, so Esther was there. Wow. Um, uh, all of the top players were there. I actually realized how many Dutch players there were besides Esther, which was, which was a funny, uh, a funny thing to realize. I actually, I remember because we're, we live quite close, Esther Vigier and I, and I remember when I played one of my matches, she actually came out to watch, oh. which was nerve wracking. Oh my gosh. Nerve so nerve wracking. Um, 
And uh, I remember just afterwards asking my mom, like, what did she say? And what did she think? And uh, like, why did she even watch? And yeah, she's sizing up the competition, Didi. She wants to know, you know, what's going on. Yeah, I think she was. Uh, No, no, it was it was such a great experience. Just also not only playing my own tournament, but just really seeing the high level of the Mm -hmm. of the main draw, actually. So yeah, it was it was such a good experience for me being very young and then playing that tournament. Do you still get nervous today playing matches? Is that is that something that you kind of always keep with you or or now it's old hat. You've played 400 matches. I mean, it's just kind of whatever. Yeah, I think I I definitely still get nervous. I just handle it in a different way. Whereas usually I could sort of get caught in those nerves and then just freeze up a little bit. I think now I, I sort of, I know that they're there. I accept them and I try to still do my own thing, but yeah, no, there's definitely, definitely still there. Well, you took those nerves and we're going to talk about topic six. And this is really when your career starts heating up. We're on topic six. And after years of winning junior tournaments and ITF events, Didi was ready to compete with the best in the world. You'd have a great 2016 season playing in your first Paralympics in Rio, and you'd win a silver medal in doubles. You'd also qualify for your first season-ending championships in London that year as well. But 2017 is really where things would start to change for you, Didi. You'd start your 2017 season by going to Australia and playing in your first Grand Slam at the Australian Open. You didn't win that first Grand Slam match against Sabine Ellerbrock from Germany, but... You've had a ton of success in Australia and since then winning titles in both 2019 and 2021. What are some great memories you have from your years playing in Australia? Australia. Yeah, that was uh, always something special. I think Australia for me, I sort of have like a love-hate relationship with Australia. Oh, why? Why? (laughs) Um, Definitely like playing my first Grand Slam there. Like you said, I played Sabine Ellerock, which... I hadn't lost a match to before that. I lost that match. I was I was very heartbroken. After that, I didn't lose any matches. So the only match I lost against her was in my first Grand Slam. Oh, do you know your record uh, against her? I think it's, I mean, just for everyone can hear, she's 18 and one against her. So you're beating her and then you play your first Grand Slam. And I yeah. can imagine the heartbreak. And then you haven't lost to her since. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I definitely, I, I went into that match way too confident, thinking I was going to make it to the next round in my first Grand Slam, which is, which is definitely something like tennis players, we need to just, you don't need to think about, you, you don't need to think about winning or losing. You need to think about just how you're going to play. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I just really was like, okay, I've got this. I'd, I've done it before. I can do it now. Uh, but I know I didn't do it. And that is actually something that helped me so much because I was just like, okay, you know what? I can't win anything. I need to play for it. I need to work for it. And um, I need to work hard to keep winning, I think. Yeah. So that was actually a funny first experience of, of the Australian Open. And after that, I just remember it's such a long trip to Australia. It's We're so far from home. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's always way too expensive to bring family members. So I, I always get a little homesick, even though I don't really have struggled with uh, homesickness before. So yeah, even though I love the country, I just wish the country was in Europe. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So yeah. After tough draws in Australia and the French Open in 2017, you'd arrive at Wimbledon and your first Grand Slam would be waiting for you as you'd make your debut at the All England Club. Can we talk about that first Grand Slam final? I know we have that heartbreak we talked about in Australia, the French similar, but we get to Wimbledon 
were playing on grass for the first time at Wimbledon. Do you remember that match and what that feeling was, that final? Yes. Yeah, I remember it very, uh, very well. I remember. And do you remember, uh, and ironically, the final was against... Sabine, Sabine, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I definitely like that was something that helped me so much having that experience in, like I said, like having that experience in Australia where I just, I thought, you know what, I'm going to win this. I didn't have that feeling going into that Wimbledon final because grass is so difficult for us. It's definitely possible. And I think it's, it's great that uh, singles is added at Wimbledon, but at the same time, it's so difficult because you just... You push and you're still, you push, you're still. So you need to just keep going and be so strong. So yeah, I was, I wasn't very confident going into that final, but I just tried to sort of enjoy it, which was funny because yeah, I think playing your first, playing your first Grand Slam final, you should enjoy it. But I think also you, you already put so much pressure on it. So I, I was just very happy to enjoy that. And I, I just, uh, the, the image that I have in my mind very uh, clearly is how I, that last ball, she hit a serve. It went to my forehand and I was just like, okay, I need, just need to get it away as much as possible from her. I just need to hit it like around there or that spot, just hit it straight down the line. I can do this, hit it and you've, you've got it. And I just remember, I think I framed it even. It was not a good shot, but it was far away from her and uh, she didn't reach it. And that was just such a, yeah, like a, like a, I don't even know how I can explain it. It was such a, a funny and nice a dream. And it's like a dream moment. being from Europe. Was that always your goal as a kid? What was that feeling for you? I never really had like a, uh, I always, I, that's why I said a funny love hate relationship with the Australian Open. I loved watching the Australian Open. It was my favorite Grand Slam to watch. But I think only going to each of the Grand Slams, you sort of get to know how the grounds are and how the people who are there are, um, how how it's all sorted for the players. And I think Wimbledon is such an iconic event. Yeah. Like everything is still the same from a hundred years back to now. It's still the same. They use the same balls, the same grass. The, the grass is like it's cut by hand. So there are so many things about Wimbledon that are just so special and unique um, that I think it's, it's only normal to say that that is just uh, something yeah. that you'll never forget. Wow. Wow. What did that first title do for you after winning? How did that change your, your career at all or, or did it? Um, so I think for me, it was just really like a, like a first milestone that, that got me to confidence. You know what? I can do this. I can do this. If I can do it now, I think I can do it in the future, which is something that helped me grow a little bit of confidence because back then I was still doubting myself a lot and uh, I didn't believe in my game as much whereas that title really helped me and then afterwards I just remember like I I got this I can do this um, yeah. so yeah it was a special change in I think my look at my own tennis uh, where it just changed a little bit to uh, you know what I can do this uh, and also the, your competitors know that you can do it too so there's yeah, that exactly. added pressure yeah. for them too they're like well yeah. she did it once she could do it again yeah exactly and yeah that change is, is has been very important for me I think Hey, fantastic fans. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode. I'm guessing you've already browsed goldenageoftennis.com while you've been listening. But if not, guys, I know you don't want to hear this, but the holidays are right around the corner. I know I'm just the messenger, but it's okay. If you want a really cool gift for the tennis fan in your life or really just for you, <laughs> then this is the only place you're going to find updated retro fashion 
like Bjornborg's classic Fila polo and matching headband, or what I literally just bought this morning, the coolest black and white LS vintage track jacket and shorts that Guillermo Vilas and Boris Becker used to wear. Visit goldenageoftennis.com today and get same-day worldwide shipping wherever you are, plus 10% off with the code FANTASTIC. And speaking of fantastic, let's get back to the show and see how this game turns out. My money's on the fan this week. Let's go into topic seven today. We're going to talk about doubles because you've proven to be a future Hall of Famer, not only on the singles court, but also on the doubles court. So topic seven is all about DD's doubles domination. <laughs> DD, you have 12 singles grand slams and 12 doubles grand slams. So I'm guessing you don't really have a preference between the two. I'm guessing you like them equal. <laughs> is there one that you prefer slightly over the other? Yeah, I say I'd, I'd say I'm I'm a little bit more of a singles player than a doubles player. In singles, I can really just I I don't know I, I like doing it myself. Yeah. Uh, and in doubles, you you do have to do it together. You can't do it you can't do it on your own. So even though I like playing doubles, like I like playing with Anique, we have a lot of fun and I enjoy the matches. I still just enjoy doing it myself. Uh, so yeah, I think I would have a, a preference in singles. What do you look for in partners? Obviously, your partnership with Anique has been legendary. The success you've had with her has been so amazing. What does she do really for your game that complements each other? Why are you such a force together on the doubles court? Yeah, we started out actually not so well together. We we were, I think we were like a little bit of the same players where we didn't believe as much in our own games, hmm. which led us to playing matches where we were both a little bit at the back of the core, it's very defensive, mm-hmm. just waiting for the opponent to make a mistake. But that's not our, our games. Like we need to, both of us were, uh, were offensive. We need, to, we need to go inside the court. We need to go to the net. And when we decided to play together, that was a change that we really had to go through to win matches. And um, it's been a really interesting process, I think. And it's re- been really fun as well, where we really had to sort of figure out, okay, you know, what, what's your, let's say, game plan and what's your game plan? Like yeah. two game plans besides each other, but then complement each other so that it becomes one game plan. And um, yeah, we have been really doing very well in just perfecting that over the last 100%. year, percent, Absolutely. You guys are great on the court. I love watching your doubles matches together. It just seems like you know each other so well. It seems like yeah. at this point, you know where, where, where she's going and she knows where you're going. And I, I, that's that's harmony, right? That's what we want. Yeah, exactly. And I think for us as, as uh, women doubles players, I think uh, there was always this thought that we all the four of us would sit back, hit the ball to the other side of the net. But right now, that's just not the case anymore. We go into the court, we hit a volley, we go back, we hit a smash. So it's really diverse and yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it seems the doubles game has really evolved tremendously in in your sport. So, well, we're on topic eight now and we're talking about doubles and I want to talk about your first calendar slam. We're halfway through today. You're so great at doubles and you proved that in 2019 as you and Anique would absolutely crush the 2019 season and win the calendar grand slam. So topic eight is your first experience with winning all four Grand Slams. I say first because you've done it a couple of times now. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go back to 2019. By the way, do you have a surface preference? I know we talked about the difficulties of grass, but is there a surface that you prefer to play on? Uh, I think both all of us wheelchair tennis players, we just love playing hardcore. It's just easiest. It's it's where the quickest on hardcore. And uh, yeah, I think that's the most easy. Now that you've won a Grand Slam, in singles, Didi, how different was that feeling back in 2019? Was it the same amount of pressure at the 2019 US Open going for that calendar slam? 
No, definitely not. I think both of us only realized we'd done it when uh, when we when, when we won. really uh, yeah, you were just we, winning so much. It was just like, oh, it's just yeah. Yeah, no, it was just a funny a funny thing that just came to us after the match where we actually re- realized, you know what, we've won all four of them, and we we yeah we I don't know we just we were really into the moment and not really thinking ahead too much about winning everything. And I think that even that even helped us just not put that much pressure on ourselves. So yeah, it was it was a funny moment. And then you know you have somebody with you that you can share that moment with, which is a lot different than your experience this year in New York, where there's a lot more pressure, where yeah. you're by yourself. You know, yeah, I love it. I love it. All right, let's move on to topic nine, and it's a fan question. Since I brought up your 2021 slam, can we talk about the years in between 2017 and 2021? So topic nine is a question from a big fan of yours in Perth, Australia, Kim Atkins. She writes in and she says, hi, by the way, she wants to know, please tell Didi she's amazing. And please ask her what improvement in her game has been more significant from 2017 to 2021, the mental part of her game, the physical part of her game or the strategic part of her game? And what aspect of her game does she still want to improve upon? Oh, that's a difficult question. It is. I love it. Kim's getting real psychological today. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I I think I've actually, I think what the thing was in, in 2016, when I played the, the games in Rio, uh, someone actually said to me, like, I think that you're the best player here. You're just not, it's just not coming out yet. Mm. But I think everyone sort of could see that, but I couldn't see it as well. So I think over the next few years, I just tried to, everything was there. I just needed to sort of take it out of the tennis bag. Like I needed to perfect it and make it better. Or I knew I could hit a very hard forehand, but then I needed to actually do it. Maybe also, I I think in the beginning, it was mostly just tactical, just hit the ball back. And then it became mental because the pressure was getting more. So I think over the years, it sort of changed as well, where I think the last year is uh, like, I think this year has really just been at the mental side of the game where I had to improve and stay steady. Uh, whereas the previous year, I could still improve on so many things on the technical and the uh, te- tactical uh, games. So yeah, it was it was different over the years, I think. Well, you said it yourself too. I feel like the way you are personality wise is not the way you are on court. It's tough for you to, to really play that assertive game style when you're so laid back in general. So it's so interesting, you know, talking to you now and understanding that about you, about how you've been able to really be the player you are today. It's amazing. Yeah, And I definitely think the, like, like I said, the last year has been just mentally, I think that really has been the case, but I also feel like this is the first year where I could actually use all of my experience in my matches, the experience that I gained in playing that first grand slam final, but also losing the first grand slam match. Just so many things that happened to me where first they just happened to me and I sort of had to learn from it. Now I can actually use it. And that has been a very um, interesting change, I think, over this year. What do you want to improve upon moving forward? What's an aspect of your game that you feel like there's still even a higher ceiling to, to improve upon? So many things. Oh, I, there we go. I, no, no, I definitely feel like I can improve so much more. You hear that, everybody? I hope all your competitors are listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, but it, it it actually like it, it feels to me like I can. Maybe I can, but I'll notice soon enough. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely feel like in in trainings, I can still I can hit the ball harder. I can uh, hit it with more pace. I can 
I can be faster. I think I even just training, uh, I'm training so much more physical on court. And that's been a, a, a really nice change. I think for me, whereas uh, a lot of time I was in the gym, just doing, I don't know, pushups and, uh, and, and shoulder presses, but now I'm just, I'm, I'm doing my physical training on court, which has been a very, very fun change for me. Cause I feel like I can actually use the things that I'm doing. Uh, whereas with, with like a pushup, you're like, okay, I, I can do 20 pushups, but what do I gain from it do on from court? It, yeah. Whereas when I'm doing pushing drills, doing rotation stuff, it helps me so much into actually using it on the court, which has been really fun. So that's what I'm improving on at the moment. And uh, just, I don't know, serve, pace, everything. Everything, right? Yeah. I mean, history's <laughs> proven that the best players in the world keep wanting to get better, right? And adapt <laughs> yeah. to the world. So and that makes sense. And that makes sense. I love your answer. Well, let's go to topic 10 today. And we're winding down today, but I want to talk about your head-to-heads. We've talked about it a little bit. And more specifically, I want to talk about your rivals on tour. This is also your second trivia question of the day. So we're already one to know. Let's see if we can go for number two today. We ready? We feeling good? Do I need to have two out of three? Because I feel like this is... Two out of three. Two out of three. This could be it. This is it. All right, Didi. You played your greatest rival on tour, Yui Kamiji, an astonishing 40 times since the first time you played her back in 2014. But can you remember the city where you first played your great rival, Yui Kamiji. Oh, her face just went completely, <laughs> like her eyes got so big right now, like, oh no, I don't know. No, can you do it? Do you remember? You have to go back in your think tank. We have to go back to 2014. 2014, was it Swiss Open, Geneva? It was. Yeah. <laughs> You're unbeatable. I can't, I can't get it past you. I literally, it's not happening today. I think it helps as well that my, my um, career hasn't been that, that long yet. It does. It does. And you're 24. So you should have a good memory, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I called Yui your greatest rival. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, for sure. You've had some amazing competitors over the past five years, but it seems like your matches with her have been outstanding. Your head-to-head record with Yui is 25 and 15. So, I mean, that's 40 times playing the same competitor. That is, you must know everything about her game and she knows everything about your game and there's no secrets or surprises, really. What is it about her that makes her such a tough competitor for you? I actually think that when you say there's no surprises, I do think there's always a surprise with Yui. It's uh, how she has really been working on trying to find a way to to sort of beat the game that I have. I think, mm-hmm. whereas I have been trying to perfect mine, like making it better, but like it was there, but I'm making it better. I think she has been trying to find a way with her game to to beat mine and to, you know what, this isn't working. I'm going to try this. I'm going to take the ball earlier. I'm going to take away her time. And she, she, it has been so impressive of her. She's, she's a little bit tinier. She has a very good slice backhand, but she has been getting so much more diverse to sort of try and find a way to make the matches different. And um, she's been succeeding in, in some matches. And that has been a little bit tricky for me because I felt like, oh, you know what? She's, she's trying something. Okay. I need to do something else now as well. So yeah, she, we really, I think uh, she has said this before as well. We, we really push each other into becoming better players, but also finding solutions. And um, yeah, it's very, it's a nice rivalry. It's amazing that you say that because you look at the comparisons, even when you look back in tennis history with Everett versus Navratilova. And Everett said many times when Martina started beating her, she would train to beat Martina. And what you just said was fascinating because you're absolutely right. 
you you are the roadblock for Yui Kamiji. So she probably practices exclusively with you in mind with having to beat your game style. First of all, that's, you know, pat on the back because that's pretty great that she, you know, her entire uh, career is really focused on you. And I think that's so interesting, but yeah, you're right. There's always going to be these surprises now because she's going to try and build on those things that she that she thinks can beat you eventually. So yeah. And I think also, cause she's just very smart. Like she knows how to sort of think, uh, think of a way to try it. And it just really shows how diverse her abilities are. Like she, she can change her plan and um, yeah, no, it's, it's so impressive. You also have another tough rival in Anique. We've talked about Anique Van Koots a lot today. You're 19 and seven against her all time. Is it tougher playing friends on tour or now that you've played her 30 times, it's, it's fine. No, it's, it's never easy. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's not easy because you're from the same country. Yeah. It's not easy because you're friends. It's not easy because you're doubles partners. There's so many not easies in our matches. And I think it shows sometimes in the, in the scores as well. I think it's either one of us playing our best game and the other one isn't, or both of us aren't because we're both just trying. I don't know what we're trying. It, yeah, it's, it's always difficult to play uh, such a good friend. Are there any other young players on tour that you have your eye on? We talked about when Esther came to watch you. Are you now that person who's watching other players and, and kind of identifying who could be the next face of, of the sports? Is there anybody that you yeah. feel like would be your strong competition or is it going to be veterans again next year? Yeah, no, I think um, the the Chinese players are just, they're so interesting to watch because they come out to the games after not playing for two years and two players in the quarterfinals, they did so well and they really surprised us like how they've improved. I think Anique played one of them and she really struggled. She played three sets and uh, she she really had to just go all out. So yeah, I think we're, we're always trying to keep watch on that even though they don't show themselves as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's difficult to keep watching them. But yeah, no, I, I think uh, it's it's nice to see like a, uh, also last week on our world championships with for the teams, there's also a junior event. I really just like watching the juniors, seeing how they compete, how they're having fun at the same time. And yeah, I, I, always, I always have an eye out. And I bet they were shaking while you watched them too. Just like... <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I try to keep it low key. I just try to clap and... No, <laughs> Let's go on to topic 11. This is another fan question. And it comes from a fan, this time in Amsterdam, Netherlands, Mila Visser. And she says, there's been a lot of discussion lately on both the ATP and WTA tours in relation to prize money distribution to players ranked outside the top 200 and how they can make a viable living playing the sport. On the Uniqlo wheelchair tour, prize money is even tighter. And the Wimbledon champion only received 55,000 euro, which is the same amount of prize money that both ATP and WTA players made for losing in the first round. From your experience, how difficult is it to currently travel and make a living playing professional wheelchair tennis? It's um, it's a little bit of a, a two-sided question or an answer, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think for us as Grand Slam players, we actually, we can make a living out of it. We're doing well, uh, even though, uh, yeah, I think at Wimbledon it is 1% of what the winner of the able Body player gets. So 1% seems like so little. I think for Paralympic athletes, we're actually making quite a lot of money, but it's also an expensive sport. It's like you need to travel anywhere. You're not in a team, so you need to do it yourself. When you want to bring a coach, which you know is actually better for you, but it it, it costs more money. So, like it's a it's a strange question where I think there's still so many 
uh, improvements for us to make. Like uh, at the moment, there's only eight players at the Grand Slams. I think that's a little bit unfair to the level of play we have at the moment. There mm-hmm. should be so many more players at the Grand Slams. And I think when when more players have that goal of, you know what, I can reach a Grand Slam, yeah. they will become more professional. They will get to the Grand Slams, have that money to be become more professional. So I think the level will go up as well. Is there talk of expanding those draws? Have, have there been any discussions you've, 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 oh, you've known we've about? We've been trying for so many years. Yeah. This, is a, this is definitely, um, if any influential people are listening at the moment, please give us a chance. I think it's, yeah, it's been a struggle for us where we've been asking so many times, can we please expand the draws? Even though we go from eight to 10 or from eight to 12, mm-hmm. a little bit, it will mean so much to us because there would be so many more players who just have a feeling like they can reach that top 12 and reach those grand slams. And for those who aren't as familiar, do you go by rankings for those eight players at the time? So is it when we start prepping for Australia, is it the top eight in the world automatically get to play in the Grand Slams? Um, it's top seven in a wild card. In a wild card. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's top seven uh, qualified directly. And then there's a wild card. And it just really depends. Like there at the moment, there's no Australian woman who would sort of mm-hmm. have that level. So they usually give it to the number eight. Uh, but like in France, they give it to a French player. And in uh, at Wimbledon, they've given it to a, right. an English player. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's, it really is difficult for us because you need to be in that top eight to sort of make money. But then it costs money to get to that top eight. So it's difficult to, um, to, I don't know, to sort of be professional before that, but that's actually when you need that money. So I think it's like, there's parallels between the ATP and the WTA. I think being outside like top hundred is the same for us. I think being outside top 10 or top eight, because you don't earn enough money to be professional, but if you get more money, you can get professional and you can get better. You can, but yeah, no. So it's a little bit uh, difficult. And some of those I mean, I was looking at these international tournaments. We said there's 160 tournaments, which is so amazing, right? That's that the sport has grown so much, but the prize money is shockingly low. And I hope talk like this, I hope talks like this really continue to bring awareness to the sports. And and if there's continued fight for more prize money, the sport can grow and develop and sustain champions like you. And and that's all we want, right? Yeah, I think for for us, like I think an important thing to know is that when we don't play a Grand Slam, we lose money. So like playing a tournament just anywhere is we need to pay, like we need to pay to enter. We need to pay the hotel. We need to pay the food. So there's so many costs going with that. And you, you really don't earn it back because the prize money is just too low. So for us, we need to really live either on sponsors when you don't play the Grand Slams or play the Grand Slams and then win enough money to play the next tournament. So yeah, you need to be smart with money. definitely in the beginning. I mean, I can imagine if you feel it how others must feel too. So good question, Mila, obviously something we need to focus our attention on and let's, let's see what happens. You know, let's maybe, maybe there is somebody listening out there that we can, we can do something. So let's Mm -hmm. go on to topic 12. I want to talk about the Paralympics because it wouldn't have been a golden season without the gold. So I want to touch upon your experience in Tokyo from this past year. It must already seem like forever ago, a lifetime ago that Tokyo was, happened, right? I mean, you've done so much. It does, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Tokyo seemed like very difficult, Didi, quarantine-wise, and the process in general. It just Obviously, the world found out a lot about what was going on behind the scenes in Tokyo this past year. What was your Paralympic experience like? I actually enjoyed it so much. For me, it was my second Paralympics, but 
also we've been playing on the tour for already a year and at every tournament we go we're in a bubble we can't leave the hotel there's very strict rules we need to wear masks uh, so going to the Paralympics, it wasn't actually that different for me, at least how I experienced it. It wasn't that different from playing all the other tournaments. And especially because I think I was actually m- most scared of getting COVID mm-hmm. before going there so that I could actually just not go. Yeah. I think that was my my only really big scare. So getting there and getting past those first seven days that I, I think, you know what, okay, I'm, I'm here. I need to relax now. And yeah, no, I think we could freely move in the, inside the village. We could freely move inside our apartments. We could freely move inside the tennis. So yeah, no, I, I think I actually, like, I, I don't know, it was normal for us. Yeah. You've already competed. Like you said, in Rio in 2016, you won the silver medal. How important was winning gold for you? this season. How high was winning gold this year on your on your resume or, or, or your goal list? So for me, I I really wanted that gold medal, especially because I was like, I like I feel like I need to give it to myself. Like I I deserve this. I I need to treat myself to this gold medal because I definitely I worked so hard for this. And this is what you can achieve and you can sort of give to yourself. But I think that actually made it even more hard, uh, put more pressure on it. And then getting all the all the comments from everyone outside thinking, oh, your career isn't finished without that gold medal, is it? And 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 you you uh, you're going to win it uh, without playing, aren't you? And there's there's so many things that from outside that people said to me, which also led to to the amount of pressure that uh, added on top of my own pressure. So it was so difficult. So then I think when you actually do it, uh, yeah, I I think everyone saw a lot of tears and that's really how how all of the pressure just came out and and lifted off my shoulders the weight. So yes, it was definitely so special. Knowing the year you've had and at that point in Tokyo, the pressure that you felt to win that gold medal afterwards, did you enjoy it at all? Obviously the tears said, oh, you know, there's a stress relief, but obviously the attention turns to the US Open now because you're you're four steps away and you're, you're, you're check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark. Now it's US Open and it's like, wow, everything's on the line now. Yeah, it was, it was very difficult going, like I think... I'd, I won the singles. Then I think I was back in bed at two in the morning and I had to be up at eight again, uh, not sleeping until 4.30. I think it was so hectic. Everyone at home was awake. Yeah. So that yeah. didn't help me as well because I was just <laughs> on my phone, like answering everyone. I was like, oh, oh no, I have another match. I need to play the doubles. I have another match. Yeah. I need to sleep. So then I couldn't enjoy it that night. And then the next night I played the doubles. It was late again. So I couldn't enjoy that night. And then uh, after that, we were already on a flight back, uh, not back. Uh, we were already on a flight to New York, uh, whereas all of our teammates went back home and I was, oh, it was horrible. I definitely, those first few days in New York, I felt very alone. I felt very sad, even though I was happy because I won the gold medal. But yeah, it was difficult. It was definitely difficult. What I took from that was that you can win a gold medal even with two hours of sleep. So that's how I, that's what I took from what your conversation <laughs> was. I don't know if anybody else listening got that, but I, that's what I, that's what I know now that she's imagined. And a lot of coffee. <laughs> and a lot of coffee. Well, let's go on to topic 13. I'm talking to a gold medalist. I'm talking to a golden Grand Slam champion. I want to pick your brain for a minute with topic 13. I want to play 
five stupid questions with Didi DeGroot. This game is very simple. It's literally going to be five stupid questions that take no brain power whatsoever. So I just want everyone to get to know you a little bit more. So question one, can you name a TV show that you're currently watching? Oh, sex education. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that on Netflix? It is on Netflix. Uh, I love it. It makes me laugh out loud, even when I'm on my own. (laughs) Uh, Have you seen Ted Lasso yet? I I highly recommend Ted Lasso. Number two, what's your favorite non-Grand Slam tournament to play on tour? Um, I think the preparation tournament for us, it actually is funny because it came after Roland Garros, but it's actually meant to be before Roland Garros. This year was the Mortoglu French Riviera Open. Uh, it's so well done. Uh, everything is in place. It sounds very um, fancy, what you just French said. French Riviera <laughs> is nice anyway. Um, so yeah, that's definitely my favorite. Okay. Well, I, I, you have very expensive taste. I like it. I like to, <laughs> <laughs> Number three, I think all tennis players have their on-court quirks. Are you superstitious at all on court? And if so, what is it? It's, we usually, um, my coach and myself, we usually pick up on uh, little routines during the week. So let's say the first day I get into the car on the left side. Second day I get into the car on the left side. At the end of the week, I'm not allowed to sit on the right side anymore. Yes. Um, those <laughs> those are the kind of things like, and my coach is like, no, you're not going to sit on the right side today, right? It's your final day. You're not going to sit there now. And we actually move sides then. Uh, so they're, 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 they're the kind of things that uh, we usually pick up on during the week. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm normally like already have those things on court. Tennis players are the weirdest. We are. <laughs> I mean, we all have strange quirks. It is just the straight. I love talking. I love asking that question. It's so funny. I like to bounce the ball an even amount of times. That's my thing. I can't. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. has to be an even amount. If it's odd, I, I, it's forget it. It's not going to yeah. happen. So anyway. Yeah. Also, I don't like winning the toss. That's also something weird about me. I don't oh. know. Yeah. Very strange. Like anyway, we all have our weird things. Number four, name a tennis player you love to watch play. Nadal, for sure. hundred percent. Nadal. Nadal yeah. fan here. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And last one. If I was going to YouTube a Didi DeGroote match, what would you say is the best match you've ever played in your career so far? Ooh. Was there a match that you just did not miss? It was just like you were in the zone. Yeah, if, like if you if you think about like just like my perspective, like my match best match ever, I yeah. think that would be Australian Open 2019. Okay. I think I won the final 6-6 six, six, love 6-1 six, against Yui who I normally play either three sets against or just 7-5 6-6 four. I was just hitting everything. I don't know how, but I just couldn't miss. But I think like, if you think in suspense kind of way, I think the definitely the, the final of the Olympic Paralympic match was the, was the best one. Cause there was just so much going on. So much. much It was so, uh, so exciting. Yeah. That scoreline was so crazy. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's move on on topic 14. We're, we're winding down today with the legend Didi DeGroote. This is another question from a fan, and it's about the mindset of a champion. Didi, I've never spoken to someone that loses as little as you do. This is the first time. Mm -hmm. Honestly, you've lost one match this year. I don't even know what that feels like. It's been since the 2020 French Open semifinals that you've lost a singles match at a Grand Slam. That's five straight Grand Slams and a pandemic Wimbledon where there was a break. So it's been a long time. Does winning get addictive? Is it addicting to you? I mean, at this point, I mean, how much fear is there. And again, you already said, you know what it feels like to lose. So you don't want to replicate that. But do you think about what it would feel like to lose again? Because 
it's just been so long. Yeah, I think, uh, like I said, losing, you don't really forget how it feels Mm -hmm. and you don't want it again. But at the same time, I'm realistic. I know tennis is such a difficult sport and it's difficult to even because the season's so long as well. You don't really have that downtime. So I know how difficult it is to just go in week in, week out, just not dropping one game or not dropping one set. So I know just anything can happen during a tournament. And and that's always what I try to keep in mind. Like I'm not unbeatable. I know that. But I need to fight and I need to to work for it really hard. And then I can either be very happy or I can work on things again. So I, I really just don't try to think about winning or losing as much as everyone else's, I think. Can I talk to you after a loss? Does it take a, a while to kind of maybe yeah, just let it sit you, in? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you can talk to me. I, I definitely, I, I have the habit of just really crying, but I feel like everyone has that. It's funny when you have a locker room full of women and you just know who wins and who, who loses. I don't know if that counts for the men. I'm not there, but yeah, no, it's, it's definitely something that happens. Yeah. And I think uh, that also just explains how much of your heart is in there. Like you give everything and you're also tired from just playing a match, but then also just having that, that just like the feeling of that you failed. So yeah, no, I, I just like, I, I definitely get very sad, but also I get realistic and you know what I'm human. Uh, I know I can lose and that's just the way it goes. Yeah. Can we talk about how you handle pressure? I know we've said this word so many times today, but I can't imagine the year you've had with the pressure that builds for each tournament. And there was so much chatter going into this year's US Open. As we talked about after Tokyo, it was truly historic, not only for yourself, but also Novak Djokovic and Dylan Alcott, who were also going for calendar grand slams in their respective draws. What was your mindset going into the US Open this year? I know you got to New York and you were feeling there was a letdown after after Tokyo. Did you feel relaxed or did you feel pressure knowing that this was really your shot at history? I actually, I felt relaxed for the first few matches. Uh, I I played really well, uh, even though I was so tired. Just really, like, I felt like there was a weight lifted off my shoulders. I could just play freely again, which I hadn't felt in a long time. Mm -hmm. So that was just very nice to sort of experience that feeling. But then going into that final, I think that... The announcer of the match, I think he said it about five times how I was able to complete this massive achievement. So I think that was just something that went through my mind so many times. And I think both of us, we didn't play a very good match. I think Yui was tired as well. I was tired. We, uh, The level wasn't very high. Like it wasn't a very good match. And I think that that sort of also showed how tired we were, but also how much pressure there was on there. So yeah, it it wasn't the best match, but also like it was so historic i guess that um it's okay no no one will ever look at the match again just at the results <laughs> that's, so that's fine <laughs> at match point when you won it did you finally feel like you had done what you'd set out to do did it feel really good in the moment or did it sink in maybe a little bit later I, it really just sunk in when i was finished and got home really yeah. um just like I said, being away, you don't really realize what it does when you're, uh, when you get home, it's when everyone congratulates you. Everyone wants to see you um, so much media, which is such a great experience, how it's really changing like that. So, yeah, I think it was when I got home, how I actually realized what, what kind of achievement it was. And when I was there, it was really just, I think more relief uh, than, uh, than joy, I think. 
so happy for you. I'm so proud of you. And, you know, obviously it's um to accomplish what you did. It, for me, it's unfathomable. It's just crazy, you know, to know that this is the year you've had. So really, really amazing. Well, we're going to, we're going to get to our last trivia question today. You've already won the game, but I think it's just fun just to do this last yeah. one too, because you know, you're so good. So you probably yeah, won't mess yeah, this yeah. one either. <laughs> of the four grand slams, DD, the Australian open, French open, Wimbledon and us open. When you combine both your singles and doubles records, do you know which event of the four that you have the best record at? Um, is it the US Open? Of course it is, because you're gold. Oh. You can't get anything wrong. Of course it's the US <laughs> Open. <laughs> I do need to think about these, though. They're I know. You're just like, yeah, I got this. It's easy. <laughs> Bring on something harder. Next interview, I promise. It'll be a lot harder, okay? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You've lost one singles match and one doubles match in the entire US Open history. That's just... Again, a crazy statistic that only you have. So that's just the way it goes. Well, we're on our last topic today with the amazing Didi DeGroote. We've paid homage to your incredible 2021 season. But as we close today, I'd like to look forward to what's next for you, Didi. As we start preparing for next year, obviously we have the championships coming up. What's your goal for the 2022 tennis season? So for us, even though I think the Paralympic Games, they're uh, the biggest for us still and i think that sort of has to do with the, the little bit of the, the media attention that we get during the games there's so much more attention for us so i think that also the draw is so big for us if you compare it to the grand slam mm -hmm. so uh, i think for us the the paralympic games are still such a, a big event but then the grand slams are getting bigger each year and you there's so many improvements each year i think we we get to play court one center court play our finals on the same days that the able body players do so yeah i think that's a really fun change and and it also makes me just look forward to australia again and playing roland garros and playing wimbledon uh i'm really just looking forwards again yeah and i think whereas this year there was just so much pressure and and i knew i had this impossible task uh waiting for me in in september i don't have that now and i i feel like i can relax a little bit more good uh so i'm really just looking forward into gaining more experience playing better uh still improving and then playing more grand slams when you've won everything in the sport, like you have, what keeps you motivated? Um, I think actually that that little bit of improvement that I feel like I can still do or uh, manage. And that's that's very fun for me. Like I feel I'm still hungry to get better and become a better player. So yeah, I just try to do that. And uh, that's why I still train every day. And that's why I still enjoy it. Esther has 48 Grand Slams. You have half of that. Is that insight for you? It, I don't really, I don't keep any lists. I, I just try to play. And uh, if that ends up me being, was she 49? If, if that ends up me being 48, I don't mind. Uh, my career will not be any less good. Like I said, I think Esther just accomplished so many great things. I don't think anyone will ever get on top of that or get on top of, I think the, the sort of, is it mystical? Like, yeah. Like it was such a phenomenon. Esther was a phenomenon. And yeah. I think no one will ever beat that. But um, I'm just trying to be as good as I can and uh, enjoy it. Well, regardless if you get to 48 Grand Slams or even 25, the things you've been able to accomplish in the sport is something for the record and history books. And you're an inspiration to anyone that has ever held a racket. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. I know I'll be cheering for you next season. And I have a feeling that everyone listening will be cheering for you as well. What a fun hour. I want to thank my guests for joining us today. I feel like we've learned so much. Our guest, Didi DeGroote, can be found on both Instagram and Twitter at Didi DeGroote or visit our website, 
ddegroot.nl for all news and updates about her life and career and follow her because she's pretty awesome. I can't thank you enough, Didi. I hope you have a great off season. I hope you get to rest and good luck in the championships. What a great year for you. Thank you. And while you're on Instagram, shoot me a DM at John Garika. Let me know who you're a big fan of. And also don't forget to follow us at Fantastic Tennis Pod or on Twitter at FantennisPod. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, we'd love and appreciate a great review of the show. That's always so helpful. My name is John Garika, and thank you for listening. This has been fantastic. <laughs>